part two of a sermon series we're calling Questions Jesus Asked. Questions Jesus Asked. And what we're doing is exploring the questions that Jesus asked the people around him, and therefore are the use of the same questions that Jesus is asking us today. And Jesus would ask, as part of his teaching methodology, a sort of Socratic method, he would ask questions to draw out deep answers from the hearts and the minds of his followers. Last week, if you were here, we explored a question that Jesus asked somebody who had been sick for almost 40 years. Jesus asked that person, he said, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And that's a a question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we want to get well? Do we want to be relieved of the pain, fear, discomfort, sin, all of the stuff that we're bound in? Do we want to get well? If you didn't hear that sermon, I invite you to go on YouTube, watch that um, this week. But today, we're actually going to explore an even more important question. In fact, this question that we're exploring today that Jesus asked his disciples is the most important question that Jesus ever asked. The most important. So if you're here at church today, you are here on the Sunday where you're going to explore the most important question that Jesus ever asked. Here's how it went down. Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let me just pause there. This isn't the question. That was just a question. Son of Man is a, is a reference to himself. Son of Man is a reference to, uh, to, to his identity. It's a, a quote from the book of Daniel that describes the one that will come down from the, the clouds. And, and Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man. So when he's saying... Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's really saying, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? Jesus was trending. People were following Jesus all over the place. But people were having a lot of ideas about who he was, and he was saying, "Who? who, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? Who are people saying that the Son of Man is? And they said, his disciples answered him, verse 14, they said, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say uh, that maybe you are Elijah. Others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of people have a lot of things to say about Jesus. They're trying to figure out who you are, Jesus. They haven't quite figured it out, and people are trying to figure it out, and they they know there's something special about you. Maybe you're Elijah. You know, Elijah went up in the whirlwind. Maybe Elijah's come back down from the whirlwind, and you're Elijah, and you're just walking around like Jesus, but you're really Elijah. Maybe you're a prophet, Jeremiah, that came up from the dead. Maybe you're John the Baptist who was killed but now has resurrected. We don't know who you are. People are saying all kinds of things. But that wasn't the real question he was driving at. The real question he was driving at is in verse 15 when he says, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? These were Jesus' closest followers. These were his mentees. These were his apprentices. These were his disciples. These were his closest friends. And he wanted to know whether they understood who he really was. Who do you say that I am? Peter, of course, is the first to reply. The gunner on the front row with his hand raised. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew who Jesus was. Peter knew. Jesus answered Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. You know who I am? I'm going to tell you who you are. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Today I want to ask one simple question. 
One simple question. Who is Jesus to you? That's the title of my sermon today. Who is Jesus to you? Let's take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who is here even now in this moment. I pray that you would fill me with your strength, your wisdom, your truth. Let me convey what you want to be conveyed today. Open our hearts to receive what you have to say. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Now, some of you may not know this couple on the screen behind me. Their name is Scott and Amy. Some of you might know them. Some of you don't know them. Uh, Scott and Amy used to be my neighbors. They were my next door neighbors when we lived over on Stanford. In fact, we've known them for many years. We knew them before we planted the church. And when we lived over on Stanford, we would invite Scott and Amy over and all of our neighbors, we'd come over, we'd have these dinner parties and whatever, and everybody would come together. That's before we had four children. So we had time for that kind of thing. We would just invite folks over. And and, uh, Scott and Amy would come um, and we became friends with them on the street. But when we were getting ready to plant one family church, I did not think that Scott and Amy would ever come to One Family Church. I knew we were going to invite them, but I didn't think they would ever show up because neither, neither of them are Christians. Uh, Amy was atheistic in her worldview. That's just the perspective that she had adopted over the years. Scott had been raised in a, in a uh, sort of non-practicing or nominally practicing Jewish home. Uh, he was agnostic. He was open to, you know, thinking about things, but he was not a believer of any particular kind. So I was very surprised on that very first Sunday when they came and they sat right kind of in the back row right over there. They came and they sat through the entire service. And I thought, well, that was nice. That was our neighbors supporting us. I was more surprised when they showed up the second Sunday. I was extremely surprised when they showed up the third, fourth, and fifth Sunday. They decided that as I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark during that first year, they wanted to just historically, sort of academically, learn about what the Bible teaches just as a cultural event for them, as a cultural experience. Then I noticed that every once in a while, Scott and Amy would invite me over to their house, ostensibly, to move things for them. So they would be like, hey, could you come over and help us move the freezer? Could you, could you come over? We've got some cabinets that need to be moved. We've got a couch that needs to be moved, our sectional. And so I was like always going over to their house moving stuff, right? But what they were really doing was asking me to come over to their house so that we could talk about God. So we would move something, and then they would go, hey, you know what? Um, actually, um, I know we asked a question, but we have a question behind the question. Kind of like Jesus said, when, who do people say that I am? But actually, I have a deeper question for you. And then they would start to ask me questions about God and about the Bible, and about Jesus. And I'll never forget, one day, I, went, I was in their garage. I was moving some heavy item. And I was in their garage, and Amy said this to me. She said, listen, we're really enjoying our time at the church. It's been a great experience for us. You know, we love the people. We love the camaraderie. We love the community. We love the vibe. We love the music. The preaching's okay. Everything's, you know, it's pretty decent, right? Here's our question. Here's our question, because we need to get this resolved. How important is the whole Jesus thing? To the church. How, how important? Because we're not quite sure where we stand on that question. We're digging the vibe, but how important is the Jesus thing? What they didn't realize is they were asking the most important question that they could possibly ask. Who is Jesus? Because Jesus is the foundation of the church. He's the head of the church. Everything related to the church points back to Jesus. Jesus is the most important aspect of the church. He's the church. He's the head of the church, and we're his bride. And so I said to them, well, what you're asking is the most important question. 
And in so many words, I said, well, who is Jesus to you? As the weeks went on, they wrestled with the question, but they weren't quite ready to answer the question. And so they came to me a few weeks later and they said, hey, listen, it's been a great run. We've enjoyed hanging out at the church, but we're going to take our Sunday mornings back so we can go to the botanical gardens. We can go on walks. We can go get some brunch. We're just going to chill out. But thank you for the experience. I said, no problem. No problem. They weren't ready to answer the question, who is Jesus? 2,000 years after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, people are still asking that question. Who is Jesus? Who was he? Who is he? And the question that we are asking today is the same question that people were asking back then. They were wrestling with that question. People were saying, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's John the Baptist. People were wrestling. In fact, the people from Jesus' hometown, he grew up in a town called Nazareth, they couldn't figure out who Jesus was. If you look at Matthew 13, it says this. These are the people that he grew up with. Where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Don't we know this guy? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his, all his sisters with us? We know his family. We know his siblings. But where did the, this man get all these? Who is this guy? Something is different about him, and we don't quite know who he is. Even Jesus' disciples were trying to figure out who he was. He performed a miracle on the Sea of Galilee. He calmed the storm. Mark 4 says this, and they were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? People were trying to figure out who is Jesus. Even his enemies were trying to pin him, were trying to put a name on him, were trying to pin an identity on him. The scripture says that a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus, and when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. Jesus drove the demon out of him. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. In other words, they said, we know who he is. He's, he's, he's a demon-possessed man. He's evil. People had different perspectives and views about Jesus. But let me tell you, nobody was neutral. Nobody was like, you know, he's okay. People were either ready to bow down and worship him, or people were ready to hang him up on a tree because he was a demon-possessed evildoer. Nobody was like, you know, Jesus is, is, a, is a pretty decent guy. You know, I don't really have strong feelings about him. Nobody really did that. Now, over time, people have adopted and embraced that picture of Jesus. They've got kind of an airbrushed picture of Jesus. Cool guy, nice hair, good teaching, you know, wise, sage, likes sheep, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Kind of like a granola camp counselor. He's got some good life hacks. You know, he'll kind of help you out and out of a jam, right? They've kind of adopted. But actually, Jesus' life does not leave that option open to you. Jesus' life drove you to one of three conclusions. If you look back at the history of Jesus, and I'm talking about the history that all people affirm, all first century scholars, whether they're Christians or not, whether they're atheists, agnostics, or whatever, here's what people know about Jesus. First, they know that there was a Jewish man named Jesus who lived from about 4 B.C. to about 30 A.D. Everybody agrees to that sometime in that time range. Everybody agrees to that. Number two, he claimed to be some kind of divine messenger. People just know that that's the case. For that claim, historically, everyone agrees, he was crucified under a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate. He was buried in a tomb. And then after his death, 
his followers claimed to have seen him risen. And they began to preach all around the world that he had risen. And thousands and then millions of people came to believe in him. Those are just the historical facts. Just based on those historical facts, you have one of three options when it comes to the identity of Jesus. Number one, he was crazy. He was insane. He's somebody that thought he was, uh, he had delusions of grandeur. He thought he was some kind of Messiah figure, but he wasn't. That's one option. Option number two is he was a cult leader. He was a manipulative, evil person who knew what he was doing. He knew he wasn't the son of God, but he was trying to amass power and wealth and fame and fortune. That's number two. Third option is he was the Messiah, the son of God. He was exactly who he said he was. Those are really the only three options that we have in front of us when we look at the life of Jesus. So the question is, who is Jesus to you? My, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, describes this trilemma. Here's how, here's, how he call, here's how he says it. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He said, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, Jesus' life forces us into a question. Now, many of us here today are Christians, and so we're already going, door number three, Bob, I'm going to go with Christ, Son of God, Messiah, right? I'm going to go with that, right? But let me push a little deeper into that. Is Jesus really your Lord? Is he truly your Messiah? Is he truly the Lord of your life? Does he rule over your heart? Does he rule over your soul? Does he rule over your mind? Does he rule over your body? Does he rule over your relationships? Does he rule over your decisions, your finances, your ethics, your morals? Is Jesus truly the son of God in your life? Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk through three qualities, three attributes, uh, three essentially divine gifts that begin to emerge in us when we rightly identify Jesus. So if you're a note taker, you can write these down. Deliverance, direction, and destiny. Deliverance, direction, and destiny. This is what we begin to experience when we rightly answer the question, who is Jesus? Let me start with deliverance. Deliverance. The scripture tells us that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two criminals. There was one on his right, and there was one on his left. And he was crucified on a hill called the Skull. And these criminals were on either side of him. And in this moment, these two criminals were in a dispute about the identity of Jesus. The one on his left began to hurl insults at Jesus while he was dying and said, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, if you're all you're cracked up to be, why don't you get yourself down off the cross and get us down too? He didn't believe who Jesus claimed to be. He did not believe that Jesus was 
the Messiah, the Christ. And you can kind of understand his belief because Jesus was literally dying at that moment. So he's like, I don't believe who you are. I don't trust who you are. I don't, I don't think you're the Messiah, the Christ. I don't believe that. The one on his right leans over and says, hey, you should not say that. This man has done nothing wrong. This man has lived a perfect and righteous life. And we know that the man on his right knew that Jesus was the Messiah because he turns to Jesus and he says, when you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? In other words, he believed in who Jesus said he was. And do you remember what Jesus said? If you've read the story, Jesus turns to him and says, this day you will be with me in paradise. How did this man experience deliverance? Simply by declaring the reality of who Jesus was. He understood in that moment, this is who Jesus really is. And by stating that, by affirming that, by embracing that, by recognizing that, he was delivered that day, his soul eternally in paradise. His declaration became the opportunity for deliverance. Here's what the scripture says. I'm not going to put these on the screen. I'm just going to run through these, right? But this is, what, this, is what, this is what the Bible says about us believing in the reality of Jesus. John 3, 16, you all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, what, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. John three eighteen says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of, the, of God's one and only son. John three thirty six says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Mark 16, 16 said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Philippians 2, 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somebody here today needs deliverance. And the path to deliverance is very simple. Put your trust in the true identity of Jesus. Call him Lord. Call him Savior. Bow your knee to him. And he will deliver you from the depths of sin, hell, death, guilt, shame, condemnation. He'll pull you up out of the miry clay. He'll set your feet on a rock to say. He'll put a song in your soul today. A song of praise. Hallelujah. Jesus says, I will deliver you if you can believe in who I am. That's number one, deliverance. Number two is direction. When you rightly identify Jesus, he points you in the right direction. My in-laws have been staying with us for the last couple of weeks. They just left. Um, and they have this funny thing that happens when they come. Uh, for several, maybe the last two or three visits, uh, when they come, my, my father-in-law uses the Lyft app. Anybody ever use the Lyft app? You know, the little... Rideshare, not rideshare, what is it? It's a Lyft app, that's what it is. It's like a taxi cab. Um, he uses the Lyft app when they come into the airport. Now, I know some of you are saying, what kind of son-in-law are you that you don't go pick them up? I know you were thinking that, and I felt your judgment. But, um, <laughs> but they get in at like midnight, so I got to go to bed. So anyway, but I do make breakfast for them in the morning. So anyway, way too much information about my relationship with my in-laws, but you get the idea. So anyway, he uses the Lyft app, to get to our house. And what's crazy is he actually puts the right address into the Lyft app. But this happened like two or three times. Even though he puts the right directions into the app, the right address into the app, we live in U-City. 
I'll get a call at midnight from like somewhere way up north. He'll be in like Delwood or Spanish Lake or Jennings or somewhere. And, and he'll be like, I don't think we're in a, I don't think we're there at your house. And I'm like, where are you? Right. For whatever reason, the app is unreliable. He puts in the right address, but then the app doesn't get him to the right place. When we don't follow Jesus, we're following an unreliable app. We're following an unreliable guide. When we don't follow Jesus, our direction gets off. We go the wrong way. We know where we want to go, but we don't end up where we want to go because we've got an unreliable guide. If you don't follow Jesus, you know, you have three options for a guide. You know what they are? Here they are. Self, Satan, or somebody else. Those are your three options. Those are not good options. Can I just put this out there right now? Those are not good options for guiding your life. Let me start with self. Self is that I'm going to do what I want to do. My drives, my impulses, my desires, what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be my own guide, right? People will say, follow your heart. Do what's in your heart. Can I just tell you as, as your pastor, do not follow your heart. Do not what is in, do what is in your heart. You know why? Jeremiah says this. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Put on Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I just, I feel like I just let that sit right there for a minute. I could riff on that, but let me just tell you, your heart, I've followed my heart before. It did not get me where God wanted me to be. Don't follow yourself. That's an unreliable guide. The second option is Satan. You can follow yourself or you can follow Satan. Now, I know a lot of people say, man, it's old-fashioned to talk about Satan in this day and age, right? But there was an old preacher that said, if you've never run into the devil, perhaps you're running the same direction as him, okay? So, all right, okay. All right, thank you. God bless you. Man, I dropped, I really dropped the mic. The reality is this, there is an enemy of your soul that seeks to devour you, and if you're not aware of it, you will slowly fall into his grasp. In in The Usual Suspects, this is an old movie from way back, Verbal Kent said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Right? There's an enemy of your soul. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is real evil in the world. I'm just going to tell you that. I used to be a prosecutor. I used to intern as a prosecutor at the Maricopa County Prosecutor's Office. My job was to listen to jailhouse phone calls. I spent about three weeks listening to the phone calls of a member of the, of the Aryan Nation who was in jail at Maricopa County. Let me just tell you something. I, I literally had to get off of that assignment because the level of evil and darkness, the things that I heard, I said, this is beyond the pale of even dark human soul, self-driven stuff. This is, this is the enemy. This is, the, this is Satan working in this man's life. Let me just tell you, there's a real enemy of your soul, and he will not take you where you want to go. Scripture says, resist him. Resist him, and he will flee from you. So that's, you got self, you got Satan, or you got somebody else. Somebody else is just the voice of the, of the influences that you put in your life. Your, your YouTube algorithm is an unreliable guide. Your favorite news channel is an unreliable guide. Your Twitter feed is an unreliable guide. Your favorite political party is an unreliable guide. The social media influencer that you're addicted to is an unreliable guide. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. If you want to get to God, follow Jesus. Everybody else is an unreliable reliable guide. So first we get deliverance when we rightly identify Jesus. Secondly, 
we get direction when we identify Jesus rightly. The third and the last one is destiny. When you put your faith in Jesus, he gives you your future. When you, when you begin to understand who Jesus is, he begins to point you to who you really are. When you begin to understand his mission, he begins to reveal your mission. When you begin to understand his calling, he begins to reveal your calling. Your destiny is in Jesus. Let's look back at the scripture, Matthew 16. It says this. Jesus said to them, said to them but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then look what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says this, and I will tell you, you are Peter. In other words, he said, I just, you just rightly identified me. I'm going to rightly identify you. I'm going to tell you who you really are. When you rightly identify who Jesus is, he tells you who you really are. You are made in the image of God. You are God's workmanship. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have a future and a hope. God is saying to somebody today, if you'll tell me, if you'll believe in me, I'll tell you who you are. If you'll confess with your mouth who I am, I will tell you who you are. And then not only did he say that, he said, and on this rock, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's destiny language. That's language that says there's a purpose for you. I've designed a calling for you, a mission for you, and I'm setting you on it and nothing can stop it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the mission. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Who's the church? You're the church. We're the church. Jesus was saying, I've got a mission. I've got a calling. I've got a a plan and a purpose for my people. The Christian life never stops with deliverance. Doesn't stop with deliverance. Praise God, I'm saved and I'm done. No, that's the starting line. That's not the finish line. And it never starts with direction. All right, Lord, I'm going to start following you. Good. That's good. That's part of the path. The Christian life ends with destiny. When you, when you become a joint heir with Jesus, when you become an ambassador of love, when you become an emissary of the gospel, that's where the, that's where the Christian life goes. When the church says we're coming together and we're going to proclaim the gospel to every creature, we're going to bring people from far and wide into the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus. That's what we're going to do. We've got a destiny in front of us. In his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, the author Michael Green reveals what made the early church so powerful. If you think about it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because the church started with 12 and then it went to 70 and then it went to 120 and then on the day of Pentecost, it went to 3,000 and then a little bit after that, it went to 5,000 and then it began tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, then millions and now billions. How did that happen? In, in his book, he describes the sense of destiny, the sense of mission, the sense of purpose that the early followers of Jesus had, that first century Christians, the early church. And he says that they were, they were radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. This was part of their power. They were radically and fundamentally inclusive with people. They were radically exclusive with beliefs and behavior. In other words, They were radically inclusive by inviting each and every person, irrespective of their background, walk of life, socioeconomic status, or religious history, to join the movement of Jesus. Everybody in the first century, 
Everybody was invited on an equal playing field before God. Men and women, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, sinner, saint, king and beggar, sultans and servants. Nobody was turned away. Everybody was invited in. Even people who were deemed to be social pariahs, outcasts, were welcomed with open arms into the movement that Jesus had started. And this was very different from what was going on in the culture around, where there was a very stratified cultural and class system. The Christians said, we don't care about any of that. Everybody comes in. We're all one in Christ. They were also paradoxically exclusive in their beliefs and behaviors. In a polytheistic and morally permissive and relativistic society, they refused to bow down before any other gods or embrace any other ethics, ideologies, philosophies, or teachings outside of the teachings of Jesus. Now, this was strange for that day because people, everybody had their own gods. You had family gods, you had regional gods, you had, you had country gods. And, and nobody would deny anybody else's God. You'd be like, that's your God, this is my God, but I'll worship yours and you can worship mine. And it was very polytheistic. The Christians would not do that. Anything outside of the teachings of Jesus, they rejected, not only in their beliefs, but in their, be- their behaviors, their financial practices, their sexual ethics, their extraordinary generosity, their single-minded devotion to Christ were radically out of sync with the culture and the values of the day. But no matter the whims of the culture, no matter the force of politics, no matter the influences of the society around them, they were totally and completely committed and devoted to Jesus. Why? They knew who he was. They knew who he was. The question is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Church, we've got to know the answer to this. We've got to understand who Jesus is to us. I can tell you who he is to me because I was for many years not ready to answer that question. And then one day in 2005, I was put in the position where I had to face that trilemma. Is he a crazy person? Was he some manipulative cult leader or is he truly the son of God? And I bowed my knee before him and I said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. He's my alpha and omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and finisher of my faith. He's my chief shepherd. He's the rock on which I stand. He's my deliverer. He's my redeemer. He's my good shepherd. He's my great high priest. He's the horn of my salvation. He is the word made flesh. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the lamb of God who came and took away my sins. He's my light and my salvation. He's the Lord of glory. He's the lily of the valley and the bright and morning star. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the shepherd of my soul. He's the light. He's the vine. He's the bread of life. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And like Peter, I bow before him today and I say, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God. You're my deliverer. You are the source of my direction and you are the source of my destiny. Church, if we want to be on mission with Jesus, if we want to live into our destiny, if we want to be the church against which the gates of hell cannot prevail, we need to answer that question. Who is Jesus to us? I'm going to close with this. After maybe a few years, Scott and Amy would start to drift back in and out of the church, occasionally showing up, sticking around for a little while, and then pulling back. One day, I got an email from Carol, and Carol said, "Um, your neighbor, Amy Redfield, wants to have a meeting with you. I'm going to set up an appointment at the office. 
which I thought was weird because we lived next door to each other and I would see her walking her dog every day. So I said, okay, that's strange. Something's up. So we have a meeting. Amy comes to my office and she says, I need to talk to you about something. I had noticed that she had been attending pretty regularly. I said, okay, what, what do you need to talk to me about? She said, um, I've begun to pray. Now, Amy was an atheist, as I, as I said. I said, well, who are you praying to? <laughs> Let's just start with that. Make sure we're all clear here. She said, I'm praying to God. I said, okay, good. Okay, that's a good thing. She said, but here's the weird thing. I said, uh-oh. She said, I think God is talking to me. I said, oh, wow, okay. This could go a lot of directions now. We don't really know where this is going to go. I said, well, let me ask you this, Amy. What is God saying to you? She said, God is telling me that I need to pay attention to Jesus. I said, end of meeting. I have nothing to add to what God has said to you. Keep praying. Keep listening to God. I'll see you on the sidewalk in front of the house. It's a very short meeting. I said, I literally have nothing to add. You know what I was thinking. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. A few, maybe a few weeks later, Amy comes over to our house. And I wasn't home, but my wife and my son, Jameson, who was very young at that point, she knocks on the door, comes in. She sits down and she sits down with my wife and she says, I've put my faith in Jesus. I've given him my life. He's my Lord and Savior. He's my Christ. Jameson, Jameson said, does that mean you're a Christian? She says, I guess that's what they call it. A few weeks later, when we were having baptism service right here, Amy comes down the aisle. I baptized her into Jesus Christ. Her husband would occasionally come with her after she became a believer. I mean, she became a believer. Like, then she started joining life groups. Then she started leading life groups. She was on teams. She started making teams. Some of y'all know her, man. She, she, had, she, had, a, she had a lot of zeal for the Lord. Um, her husband would come with her from time to time. But after a few years, uh, they decided they were going to move out of the country. They were going to move to Lisbon, Portugal. And so they set up a meeting with me. And we get together at this meeting in my office, and her husband says, you know, her husband Scott says, you know, I feel like I should start this meeting by telling you something. I said, what is that? Man, again, these, these, I'm like, what, why y'all come with surprises like this? He said, I put, my, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm following Jesus with my heart. So this is a man who grew up um, sort of secular Jew, but said, I'm going to follow Jesus with my heart, soul, mind, and body. I'm going all in with Jesus. I'm going all in with Jesus. Bob, Bob, Bob broke my heart. I just burst into tears to see people's lives transformed like that. Last thing I want to tell you about this story. Today, today, about 55 minutes ago, Scott Herman Keeling was baptized into Jesus Christ in Lisbon, Portugal. I was texting with him this week, and they said, man, we wish you were there, man, but we're getting, Scott's getting baptized today. Let me just tell you, Jesus will transform the trajectory of your life if you'll really embrace who he truly is. I don't mean just here. I mean right here. I mean you saying, like, I want to follow Jesus with my heart, soul, mind, and body. I want to embrace Jesus for all he is. 
I want him to be my source of deliverance. I want him to be my guide. I want him to be my source of direction. And I want my destiny to be attached to Jesus. I want to follow his teachings. I want to follow his path. I want my future to be guided by Jesus. I want to lean all the way in. Church, I invite you today to answer that question in your own heart, in your own soul, in your own mind. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. There are some of us here who are making the decision for the very first time to follow you. There are some of us here who have been following you, but only on the sidelines. Some of us here have not really radically put our trust in you. Some of us have only given you lip service, but we haven't given you our heart and our mind. And today we're making the decision. I want to follow you with everything. I want you to be my deliverer. I want you to be the source of my direction. And I want you to be the source of my destiny. I'm going to follow you with everything I have, Jesus. I'm turning to you. I love you. I thank you. I honor you, and I praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.